right. Let me pray for us, and then I'll invite Sam up for our sermon today. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into the climactic part of your worship service, where we open up your word and sit under it and study it and learn more, not just about your instructions, but about who you are, and importantly, more so, about what you've done for us on that cross. Help us, Father, see Jesus and retune our hearts uh, back to him and to his glory and uh, make it clear now what it is you're trying to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, today we'll be continuing on our series and, uh, in the book of Acts, and at this point we are right in the middle of the book. Like literally, someone did a word count of the whole book, and chapter 15 is right in the middle. And this is really quite appropriate because what we're going to study today is a pivotal turning point in the history of the church. So if you recall the, uh, the story of the book of Acts so far, it begins with Jesus ascending into heaven and then pouring out His Holy Spirit on His followers in Jerusalem. And this kick-started a whole new movement, at first primarily among those who come from a Jewish background, centered around the belief that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, is the Messiah foretold by the Hebrew Scriptures, right? What we call the Old Testament. And this movement was led primarily by the disciples of Jesus, like Peter, for example, who was with Jesus while He was still on earth. And we call these guys the apostles. And then what we're told in the story is that this movement began to spread, right, out from Jerusalem through the people who came to believe through the ministry of the apostles, who traveled from Jerusalem to the regions of Judea and Samaria. And we find there that, in fact, there were some people who weren't even Jewish at all, becoming followers of Jesus, right? And we call these non-Jews Gentiles. And this wasn't at all what was expected by the Jews. Well, at the same time, we're introduced to this Paul guy who was once this ultra-conservative Jew who hated the Christian movement. But through a radical encounter with Christ, he became his follower. Then Paul, too, participated in the work of sharing the good news of Jesus. But his ministry was based out of the city of Antioch and not Jerusalem, right? Squarely in the non-Jewish world. And Paul's ministry was focused on the people who weren't Jewish at all. And guess what? A bunch of them came to faith in Jesus too, which takes us to where we are right now in the narrative of Acts, where the unexpected popularity of the Jewish Messiah amongst the non-Jews caused a major theological controversy in the early church, particularly about what it means to be followers of this Messiah. So in our text, the leaders of the church gathered to deliberate these matters in Jerusalem. And what came out of the deliberations is actually what is really a groundbreaking resolution that enabled Christianity to be what it is today, the most diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual religious movement in the history of the world. Because after this, in the story of the book of Acts, we won't meet Peter anymore, but the narrative focuses on the figure of Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles in the Greek-speaking world. And we'll see that how the gospel is really going to go out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, as Jesus said it would. Now, why is this text 
still relevant for us even 2,000 years later after the debate has long been settled? Well, because controversy, theological or otherwise, have always existed and will continue to exist in the big C, universal church, until Jesus comes back and sets us all straight. And for the most part, the church hasn't been great at handling controversies. Most of the time, these controversies either lead to relativism or tribalism, right? Relativism, where it's like, it doesn't matter. Therefore, we should avoid discussing these issues altogether for the sake of avoiding conflict and having some contrived sense of pluralism and this manufactured peace. Or tribalism, where it's like, we're right, you're wrong, so eh. And we don't want anything to do with you guys until you realize that we're right. But while indeed many of these issues are overblown and it's perfectly fine to simply agree to disagree, and there are some teachings claiming to be Christians that are so false and dangerous to the point that it's necessary for us to disassociate ourselves from them, relativism and tribalism aren't the only two options. Nor are these the best options, because neither of these options resolves anything or is capable of producing genuine unity within the church. And if these are our only two options, we'll always feel like disagreements are dangerous to the church because it threatens to break us apart. But our text will show there's actually a third way a way that can potentially make controversies actually constructive. A way to deliberate disagreements that leads to the church being unified under doctrines that have been clarified. So let's turn to our text to see how the Lord teaches us this. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1 to 21, this is the Word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from the days of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generation, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Brothers and sisters, there is certainly a lot we can discuss from this passage. But this morning, I want to point out four things this passage teaches us about how the church ought to deal with disagreement. Four ways that Christians can discuss controversial issues such that it finds a resolution that spiritually matures the church. So our four points today. Controversies can become constructive when Christians discuss the issues, one, in the spirit of brotherhood, two, grounded in our identity in Christ, three, under the authority of Scripture, and four, to find a resolution that facilitates fellowship. In the spirit of brotherhood, grounded on our identity in Christ, under the authority of Scripture, to find a resolution that facilitates fellowship. So, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open or take out your super helpful liturgy printouts, because the text will be referred to quite closely. And may the Lord soften our hearts and give us ears to hear the truth He is preaching today. Okay, so point one. Controversies can become constructive when Christians discuss the issues and the spirit of brotherhood. So, to appreciate how truly remarkable what happened in our text today, I think it's really necessary to grasp how intense the disagreement was, right? This was not simply an academic disagreement. This issue was deeply personal on both sides. See that in verse 1, the issue was of such importance that we're told that some believers went from Judea and made the long journey all the way to Antioch because they wanted to rebuke these brothers. They argued the Gentile believers had to be circumcised and follow all the laws of Moses in order to be considered legit followers of Christ. So basically, they had to leave whatever cultural background they come from, forget about that, and become Jewish. Now, this was important to them because circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses was what differentiates those who are God's people and those who are not. It's what's marked someone as being part of the family of God. And as far as they understood, this was not an optional thing, right? If you remember the book of Exodus, Moses was almost killed because he didn't circumcise his son. And for the Jews at that time, in their recent history, their people had risked their lives in order that they can be faithful to the laws of Moses, right? There were stories from the Maccabean revolt about the mother and her seven sons who laid down their lives just so that they can be faithful to the laws of Moses. This happened like a hundred years prior to the events of the book of Acts, so it's pretty recent. So they weren't just being strict for no reason. What was at stake for them was faithfulness to the Scriptures 
and the blood of the martyrs that's been spilled to fight for this cause. Well, on the other hand, Paul and Barnabas felt very strongly otherwise that these guys were wrong. They've witnessed, like over and over again, the Gentiles truly received the Holy Spirit. That's why in verse 2, they had no dissension and debate, no small dissension and debate with the brothers over there. And this is a bit of an understatement if you read the book of Galatians, where Paul accused these people of being accursed false teachers and wished that they would emasculate themselves because they were unsettling the brothers. We even read in the book of Galatians that there was even some bad blood between Paul and Peter because they were not initially in agreement with this issue. So this is an intense disagreement. So what's going on here? It's not just the racist, ultra-conservative Jews versus Paul, the egalitarian social justice warrior. If we take both of these parties charitably, this was a heated argument between brothers, both of whom were committed to follow the same Lord, both of whom wanted to be faithful to God's Word, yet have come to different and incompatible conclusions that has radical implications for what it means to live the Christian life. This was an internal conflict in the family that required a decisive solution. So notice what Paul and Barnabas didn't do, right? They didn't simply decide the matter in isolation. They were just like, cool, all right, you guys do whatever you want, and we're just going to be here doing what we've been doing in Antioch that's working. Rather, they saw that there is a connectedness in the church between people who are in the bodies of Christ. Therefore, in verse 2, the church concluded that it was necessary to seek the opinions of other Christians so that they can stand together in this issue. Now, notice the process of this gathering in Jerusalem that they did to find this unified solution. We see in verse 6 that they considered the matter together, right? It was a collective effort. There was no one person who had the decisive authority in the matter. In verse 7, Peter, the closest disciple to Jesus, spoke and gave his take only after much discussion has taken place. But that wasn't the final word because we see in verse 12, we see Paul and Barnabas testify, the hotshot up-and-comers with the fastest-growing ministry. But they didn't get the final word because in verse 13, James, who was the literal half-brother of Christ, also gave his opinion and also took on deliberating these matters from the Scriptures. And when they had concluded the debate, later in verse 28, it says that the resolution says that it seemed good to them and the Holy Spirit that this was what the conclusion was. So we can see from how the early church handled this heated point of tension that they held on to this idea of ecclesial connectionalism whereby they acknowledged that they did not exist in isolation, but as a part of a wider community of believers. While at the same time, there is genuine plurality between the leaders of the church, because their process showed that no one, not one person, had the decisive ultimate authority, because not even the most senior leader, not even the most productive minister had the monopoly on truth. But the Holy Spirit was working through them, collectively. Friends, it is this posture of connectivism, connectionalism, and pluralism that guided their discussion such that it was set up for success. It was because of this they didn't spiral into relativism or tribalism. 
Because if any single church or single Christian, no matter what their credentials may be, believe they can settle important matters like this on their own, they're taking for granted that both they can be blinded by their own sinful presuppositions and assumptions that each of us have, and the fact that the Holy Spirit is really working in every believer. Because without this posture, we'll be inevitably distancing ourselves from each other when there is debate. Then we would simply gravitate around the figure or group that happens to be more attractive to us, creating these echo chambers where we can avoid wrestling with important issues and confine ourselves to the opinions of those who are comfortable with, surrounding ourselves with yes men and women, therefore making real unity and progress in the wider universal church impossible. But unfortunately, friends, that's what's happened most of the time in the history of the church. Because this is hard. The tendency of the human heart is not to try wrestling with issues objectively and listening charitably to the other side, but to dismiss and distrust anything that challenges what we believe to be true. That's why cancel culture is such a thing nowadays. However, as Christians, this does not need to be the case. There is rarely any need for us to cancel each other. Because our text will show that there's ground that we can stand on that allows us truly and genuinely to listen to each other charitably. Just point two. Controversies can be constructive when Christians discuss issues grounded on our identity in Christ. Now let's turn our attention to the content of their discussion in this chapter. Specifically, Peter's contribution in verse 7 to 11. And what is remarkable about what he said was his reasoning about why Gentile believers must also be considered fellow members in the family of God. First of all, that the Gentiles came to follow Jesus through the exact same process as the Jews did. That first of all, in verse 7, it was through the words of the gospel that they too heard that the Gentiles come to believe. And in verse 8, it says that God saw their hearts and the genuineness of their faith. Therefore, God sent the same Holy Spirit that He has given the Jewish believers to testify to that genuine faith. And that faith is itself a gift from God. Because in verse 9, Peter teaches us that it is this faith that has purified their hearts such that there is now no more distinction between Jew and Gentile in the eyes of God. You see, friends, one of the dangers, one of the pitfalls of being a religious Jew and obeying the laws before following Christ is the sense of self-righteousness and entitlement of being the families of God. The Jews thought that the Messiah would save those who were already keeping themselves clean and pure by obeying the law. That somehow their religiousness, their works, set them up for salvation. Jesus was the one who delivered it. That their salvation was somehow only a confirmation Right, the reward for their faithfulness. But what Peter says here totally undermines that kind of thinking because he insists that it was in fact God the whole time and all the way through in their salvation. It was God who took on human form to die on the cross for our sins. It was God who sent His apostles to tell us the good news that He did this. It was God who softened our hearts such that we have faith in His gospel. And by God's Spirit, He makes this belief in His gospel effective in our hearts that we may be purified our sins. Any participation 
that any sinner can have in the kingdom of God is by grace through and through. We are heaven's citizens by grace and grace alone. This is why in verse 10, Peter, Peter applies this theological truth to reject the notions that the Gentiles have to assimilate into Jewish culture and society by obeying the Old Testament laws like circumcision. Asking them, like, who are we to test God? Who are we to question the Lord's work when the same evidence that He is doing it in us is found in them? And He continues to point out this in verse 11, that the reason why Jesus had to come and die on the cross in the first place was because the Jews, God's chosen people, had failed to fulfill the requirements of the laws. That their own necks weren't able to handle God's yoke. That's why Jesus had to bear this yoke for our sake in His grace. So it would be completely hypocritical for them and unfair for the Jews to require their Gentile brothers to fulfill the requirements that they themselves were unable to. So this is what Peter is reminding us all of, that what unites the church, what makes someone part of God's family, it's not anything we do, it's not any rituals that we participate in, it's not any rules we follow, but what has been done for us, that the most basic truth about a Christian is that we are all people who are hopelessly dead in our sins, but have been made alive by the grace of God, and that the Holy Spirit is effectively working in us all to transform us into the likeness of Christ. We're all in the same boat. So this reality is what any more interactions with our fellow Christians must be grounded in. This is where we must start. And friends, we have to realize that this is a profound turnaround for Peter because he himself was among those who were acting hypocritically at first, right? Remember, Paul had to openly rebuke Peter in Galatians. In fact, God had to give Peter a supernatural vision that we read before in Acts 10 in order for him to finally repent and associate himself with Gentile believers. So he knows firsthand how hard it is to be open-minded and break out of the cultural assumptions and traditions that we grew up in. It's really hard not to be suspicious of or straight up demonize another group when all your life they're told that they are against you, that they're wrong, that they're dirty, that they're the problem, as most of the Jews back then believed about the Gentiles. However, if we internalize that we ourselves were once against God, that we're also in the wrong, that we are the problem, yet the one who has every right to reject us came to love us and give us grace. How can we not be humbled? And what other appropriate response to this fact is there aside from approaching others with the same posture of grace and charity and generosity that our Lord has given to us? Friends, this is absolutely necessary if we want to get anywhere constructive when there's disagreement or conflict with other Christians. It's how we get past just talking past each other, beyond debating and actually talking to each other and be genuinely discussing, right? So to recap, the connectionalism and pluralism that we talked about in point one will encourage us to engage in this discussion and the self-consciousness about the grace God has given us despite 
our failures gives us some optimism that discussion can actually be fruitful. But how can we know that the discussion is actually going in the right direction, right? And that's point three and four. So point three, controversies can become constructive when Christians discuss the issues under the authority of Scripture. So if we follow narrative of our text here, although what Peter was saying was certainly a highlight of our discussion, but that wasn't what ultimately settled the argument. Nor was it Paul and Barnabas' testimony in verse 12 that brought so much joy to the brothers, as we read before. Rather, it was what James brought up in verse 13 to 18, bringing into view that in the end, what was decisive in the discussion was not that they agree, but the fact that the Scriptures agree that the Gentiles were ultimately going to be included in God's family. Specifically there, James quotes the prophet Amos, the, uh, the passage from our call to worship today. And like much of the subject matter of the writings of the prophets, he talks about God's anger and the impending judgment um, on Israel for their unrepentant rebellion. And like the other prophets, the final word is not that God will just leave His people in their desolation after punishing them, after judgment, but there will come a time when God will gather rescue and reestablish His people and dwell with them in this everlasting kingdom of blessing. And the specific text from Amos that James is quoting is clearly communicating that when this happens, it will not only be ethnic Israel who seek the Lord, it's not only they alone who will be rescued and restored, but in fact, the intention all along was for all the Gentiles, the rest of mankind, to seek the Lord and call His name now, as I mentioned before, right, this is not the only text that talks about this. We could probably do a whole sermon series on the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And it's unlikely that these ultra-conservative, Bible-nerd, hyper-religious Jews weren't aware of passages like these. However, it's always been the expectation that Israel would be rebelled and the nations would be subdued by the might of God of Israel going to war with them, and that those who are saved will be those who had been keeping the law all along, right? And, and there are definitely Old Testament texts that can be interpreted this way too. But it turns out how God fulfilled these promises completely subverted their expectation. That the Messianic king who will restore Israel and rule over all nations wasn't a political figure trying to do this by military might, but an innocent, humble man who gave up his life on the cross. And how God restored his people was not creating this political entity, rather through creating a new family community that does not work and behave like the sinful world, but live under the guidance and laws of this self-sacrificial crucified king. And then it turns out that even those who were born outside of the community that had God's laws those who do not even have the opportunity to be obedient are also able to be admitted into this family through faith in this messianic king. And this was verified by the Holy Spirit coming to them in the same way to the Jews. So what James is saying here is that there is precedent that we can actually find in Scripture that we must accept that God's plan has unfolded in a way that subverted everyone's expectations. 
Therefore, God's actions must dictate how we understand Scripture. So if we want to submit under the authority of Scripture, we must adjust our expectations and respond accordingly to the, this new reality God has revealed. Now, we must be careful, right, about how to apply this and uh, how we apply what's been done here, right? I'm definitely not saying that we should look for prophecies in the Bible in order to match them with current events, in order to predict the end of the world or anything like that, okay? A lot of people have tried it in the past and they've always been wrong because the Bible is not meant to be some kind of tool for fortune telling. But what we can certainly learn is that ultimately the scriptures must have the final word. Not our own testimonies, not our own experiences, not our own theological reasonings. What God's people must be absolutely sure of in times of controversy is that our position, what we believe, what we do, must always be in agreement with what the Bible teaches us. And this is not the case. Therefore, it's on us to humble ourselves and change what we think instead of trying to make Scripture say what we want it to say. And this is a tricky task, right? The Bible is a complicated ancient book. And it's not equally clear on every issue. There is much we don't know and can't know, and it's really appropriate for us to be humble enough to accept that. But this doesn't mean we should throw out the ba baby with the bathwater, right? It doesn't mean that trying to interpret Scripture faithfully together is a pointless task altogether. Because we can actually find that the Bible is clear on the most important thing. And that between genuine believers, there is much more that we can agree on than disagree. Because God didn't give us the Bible to confuse us, but to genuinely guide us and unite us. And He's given each believer the Holy Spirit that enables us to truly and genuinely find truth through the Scriptures. Therefore, the ultimate goal when we are in disagreement is to reach a point where we, where we are able to do what God had said to us as faithfully as possible. Now, what that looks like in the context of the church in Acts 15 is what we'll discuss in our final point. Okay, point four. Controversies can become constructive when Christians discuss the issue to find a resolution that facilitates fellowship. Finally, notice the very interesting requirements James proposes to the Gentiles in order to resolve the issue in a way that should be acceptable to everyone. Right? The conclusion of the Council in Jerusalem is that the church ought not to create any kind of cultural barriers for non-Jews to follow Jesus. But then, in, in verse 20, James proposes that the Gentiles should abstain in partaking in four things, which are things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from strangled meat, and from blood. So I'm guessing, right, the first two of these are uncontroversial to most of us, right? James tells us that the Gentiles should abandon anything having to do with the worship of idols and that they must not commit sexual immorality, meaning that they're to embrace the sexual ethics of God's people and that for them, sexual intimacy and sexual relation is only appropriate between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, right? Basically, commandments one and six of the Ten Commandments. And although there are nuances we can talk about, 
most Christians here, at least in Indonesia, should find these requirements relatively uncontroversial. But the last two are a bit more interesting because what strangled meat refers to are the meats that have not been butchered according to the standards of the laws of Moses. Because in the laws, it requires that animals should be killed in a way that the blood is drained. And also, blood there is prohibited because it's considered Old Testament symbol for life in Jewish customs. It's a very important symbol. So it seems kind of random, doesn't it, right? Out of the 600-something laws in the Old Testament, why are these two the ones that are being required and not others? Well, I think, and a lot of commentators agree, that the key to understanding this is actually found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17 and 18, which are laws specifically for resident aliens, right? For immigrants who are living amongst God's people. Turns out that the requirements that James is talking about here correspond quite nicely to these laws. And by requiring these laws, James is encouraging the Gentile believers to respect the sensitivities of the Jewish brothers that they are living amongst, while giving the Jews themselves precedent from their own laws as to how um, Gentiles can live in their community faithfully. So everybody's happy explains the rationale that James gives in verse 21, right, where he basically says that they're able to do this because in their context, there's always been observant Jews in every city that Christians would be in. Remember, at first, Christianity spread through the preaching of God's Word in the synagogues, so that there needed to be sensitivity on both sides because they're always in close proximity to each other. From the Jewish side, this looks like not forcing the, their Gentile brothers to become Jewish by getting circumcised or obeying their cultural laws and customs. And from the Gentile side, that looks like living a way that does not offend the sensitivities or disturb the communities of their Jewish brothers. And all this is so that they, both parties can have this blessed fellowship with one another. This is the end goal of any resolution that the church is working towards. Now, a question you might have is that, do we have to follow the same dietary restrictions? Is blood also forbidden for us? I know my dad is probably watching now, is particularly in this question, right? Is it a sin to eat saksang or have our steaks medium rare? And some of you here may be relieved to hear that no, I don't believe that it's a sin. Because interestingly, if you read 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, it seems like Paul is undermining the conclusion here because it's, he says it's totally okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. And although it seems like he's contradicting it, I don't think he is. Because in the predominantly Gentile context of Corinth that he was writing to in 1 Corinthians, eating these foods aren't causing anybody to stumble. So the principle of Acts 15 here still stands, right? Live in a way that facilitates fellowship with one another. Contextualize your practice. Because I would argue that what this passage and what 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is telling us is not what should be on our menus, but it's describing the posture that all Christians should have in whatever context they're in. Because the posture that we Christians should have towards one another is the posture of Christ, who although he was the one who was right, although he was the one who has the authority uh, to give all orders, 
he emptied himself of what made him above us in order to live among us in a way that we, limited humans, can understand. Jesus didn't force his laws upon us, but he fulfilled them when we ourselves were unable to. And Jesus generously sacrificed himself to accommodate to our needs, to the point of dying on the cross to solve our biggest problems. Because that's what it took for us to have fellowship with him. So if Jesus is willing to do this, then the Bible tells us and promises us that by his Holy Spirit, we are also given the ability to be as charitable and generous to the people who need it just like we do. Especially the Christians who's been given the same Holy Spirit that's leading us both to greater faithfulness. So because of this, in His infinite mercy and grace, God is capable of using a clash between sinners who are equally still working it out to not be a moment of destruction and separation, but an occasion of iron sharpening iron, an opportunity for maturity and a path to progress. So brothers and sisters, we don't need to panic when there's disagreements, right? It happens in the sinful world. And when Christ returns and he takes us to glory, all cultural barriers will be broken and every knee shall bow under the same king. But before that happens, right, we can treat each other with grace, charity, and generosity with the assurance that Jesus is still head of the church and he is over all things, sovereign and working through all things, leading the church, his bride, to be pure and blameless the day of His coming. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, blessed are you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that unites us all. Lord, we admit that our differences may come to the forefront and we often forget what you have done for each of us. Lord, give us your heart that we may see your children as you see them. That, you may, that we may treat them with the same patience as you treat us and that we may grow united and we may see this blessed fellowship that you are bringing us to, to when you bring your kingdom in full. Lord, help us allow, uh, allow us to enjoy this blessed fellowship while we're here and allow us to appreciate the differences and treat each other with grace as you have treated us. In your son's name we pray, amen.